So already the imagery of a shepherd and David are connected right away as he's introduced into the story. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. We've been for months now going through the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, and we finally finished up Second Kings. And then the next set of books is First and Second Chronicles, which retells much of the exact same stuff as the books of Samuel and the books of Kings. So rather than rehashing all of that, Tonight, we're going to try to do a big overview of that whole time period and what it all covers and include how Chronicles fits into that puzzle. So with that, I've given you a little bit of a handout that you can uh, follow along with. There's some typos, but that's fine. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try to cover this whole section and break down why things are important that seem kind of dull and just get a grasp of this whole time period and try to simplify it. The reason we went through these books so slowly is that there's so many different kings and so many different names, and then you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and sometimes kings share the same name, and it gets confusing, and you don't know who's who or what's what or when you're in, where you are in the timeline and what's going on. So. Tonight we're going to try to do an overview of all of that stuff that we've studied to help simplify it all uh, and bring it into one clear picture. So starting off, the first nine chapters of Chronicles. Now, Scripture itself says, I mean, in 1 Timothy 3.16, it says all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training in righteousness and rebuking and correcting and teaching. Okay, so this is useful. And Hebrews tells us that the, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting through flesh and bone and into the spirit. Now, this doesn't feel sharp. This feels kind of dull. The first nine chapters of Chronicles are just a bunch of genealogies. I listed out even some of the genealogies that are covered. And so while it might not seem exciting, what it is, is detailed. And the interesting thing about details is that they overcome objection. Because this is truth and fact that is detailed very, very meticulously and recorded. 
And so we now have a full history of the messianic bloodline to look back on, and that's repeated in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, so that we can draw from to understand that Jesus had the correct lineage to be the Messiah. And so while it might be boring and it might feel dull, it is in fact very sharp because it's truth that cuts through objection or misleading ideas about who Jesus is. And so some of the genealogies, and we'll go through some of this so that you can understand sort of the pattern here and how it develops through the first nine chapters of Chronicles. Now, it starts with the genealogy from Adam to Abraham. It starts from the first man to the man chosen by God, that through whom his descendants, all nations would be blessed. And God makes a covenant with Abraham and his people, his descendants, and the land that God would give them. So interestingly, it also follows and flows that another genealogy that's included is Abraham's descendants. So we have the descendants Isaac and Ishmael and their sons. But it doesn't continue Ishmael's bloodline after that. It continues Isaac's descendants, though, which are Jacob and Esau, also called Edom. And so then we're given an insight into Edom or Esau's bloodline and relatives and descendants, but then it stops. But it gives a, a full view of Jacob and Israel's descendants and their roles. And then also it gives us the descendants of Levi and who the priesthood are, and then separately the descendants of Aaron, who are a particular group out of the Levites that are eligible to be the high priest. And then, of course, it gives us the descendants of Judah following from Jacob and the Messianic bloodline, and then repeated descendants of David, who becomes the first member of royalty from the line of Judah, and through him is the, blood, is the Messianic bloodline. So what you see is a consistent narrowing so it starts with Abraham, and then he has Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael's descendants are mentioned, and then it stops dealing with his bloodline, and it deals with Isaac's. And then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and Esau's bloodline is mentioned, but Jacob's is continued, and it goes even further into some of the individual tribes of Jacob, including Levi and Judah. And then Judah's bloodline is continued even further into David's bloodline because he is the first of eligible royalty in Judah's bloodline, which is the Messianic line. And then the rest of the books of Chronicles deal with David's descendants who took the throne because it's leading to the Messiah. So what you see is actually a detailed record and it cuts off and leaves off of those who are not associated with the Messiah, but were associated with members of that family. So a member of Abraham's family, but then follows through to Isaac. Members of Isaac's family, but follows through to Jacob. Members of Jacob's family, but follows through to Judah. And then ultimately David. So it's built in a way to continue to narrow us closer and closer to who the Messiah is going to be. 
Now, what do these books cover? First Samuel all the way through Second Chronicles. They cover a period of history known as the kings of Israel. So when Israel entered into the promised land, they did not have a king. It was under the time of the judges. And the last judge of Israel is Samuel. And Samuel is the final judge, but he's also a prophet and a priest, and he anoints the first king of Israel, as well as the first member of Judah's bloodline, David, to be the following king. And it moves from a time of judges and no central authority to a time of a royal bloodline. And there's three stages in Israel's history with the kings. So you have the United Kingdom of Israel. This is when all of Israel, all 12 tribes, were one nation functioning together collaboratively and unified. And the first king is King Saul, who reigns from 1043 to 1010 BC. Now this is a little over 100 years of a unified king, unified kingdom. So from 1043 to 1010 BC, you have King Saul. A King Saul's reign is covered from 1 Samuel 8 to 1 Samuel 31, and also his end is detailed in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. Now there are some highlights in Saul's life. Saul is chosen as the king of the people in 1 Samuel 9 after 1 Samuel 8 when the people request a king and Samuel goes to God and God gives them what they want. And Samuel is chosen as, or Saul is chosen as king in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And he follows up with a decent victory, and he starts off as a decent king. But in 1 Samuel 15, he fights a battle, and he chooses to obey the orders that God gives him, and God turns his back on Saul. And then Samuel anoints King David as the next king. But Saul remains king until his death, and David doesn't take the throne until Saul dies. And so there's some overlap between Saul and David's stories where David actually served in Saul's court and even became his son-in-law through a major battle. But King David took over for Saul from 1010 BC in the southern kingdom of Judah and then took over the entire kingdom in 1003 BC to 970 BC. But he started out as a kid in King Saul's court. And there are high moments, high peaked moments in David's reign. In 1 Samuel 16, that's when he is anointed as king. And this is a moment where Jesse, David's father, is confronted by Samuel. And Samuel tells Jesse that he wants to see all of his sons. And he inspects all of them. And he's hoping that each one is the eventual king of Israel. And God tells Samuel each time that this one isn't it. And he gets down the line and there's no one left. And Samuel says to God, or says to Jesse, don't you have any more sons? And he calls David out from pasture, who is a shepherd, a good shepherd. And he leaves the sheep and comes to go meet Samuel and he gets anointed as king. So already the imagery of a shepherd and David are connected right away as he's introduced into the story. But in the very next chapter, you have maybe David's most famous moment, David and Goliath. 
Goliath is the champion of the Philistines, the major enemy of the kingdom of Israel. And Saul, as he's gathered his army on a hill, and the Philistines across them on another hill, in the valley, Goliath comes out and he challenges anyone to fight him. And he says, if any one of your any one of your men can defeat me, we will become your slaves. But if we defeat you, you will become our slaves. And everyone's afraid and no one is willing to do this. Now, the interesting piece of this is one of the reasons people liked Saul and sought him out and enjoyed the fact that he was chosen as king is that Saul was bigger than everybody else in Israel. It even says when they chose Saul as king that he stood a head and shoulders above everyone else. So he fit the part. He looked the part. He looked like a beast of a soldier. But Saul, the biggest man in Israel, hid in his tent and waited for someone in his army to take the challenge. David is just delivering food to his brothers who are in the army. And he hears what Goliath is saying, and he understands what's really happening, and nobody else noticed. Goliath is challenging the army of Israel, and he calls them the servants of Saul. And he curses the God of Israel. And David understands that these are God's people, not Saul's people. And that he's really challenging God, and God will win the battle because God cannot be challenged by Goliath. As scary as he is, as the Bible says at over nine feet tall, he's not bigger than God. And so David accepts the challenge. As Saul, the king, is cowering in his tent and the rest of the army is afraid, the battle-worn soldiers are afraid to fight in battle. But a kid who was a shepherd goes out in the field and stands up for everyone else. It wasn't even David's battle to fight. It wasn't David's giant. It wasn't David's battle. But he stood in the place of everyone else whose battle it was, and defeated Goliath for them. This is another great foreshadowing of the Messiah who will come through David's bloodline. It's not Jesus' sin that he died for. Jesus stood in our place and hung on the cross in our place and defeated our giant of sin. And he took it down for us, which it's, it's our battle, but we're sitting on the hill cowering because we can't defeat it. We cannot beat sin on our own. We can't erase it. Because the only way to pay for sin is death, and Jesus' death is what conquers sin for us, much like David stood in the battlefield that wasn't his battle for everyone else. But not all of what David did turns out well. Because of David's good reign, though, and his heart towards God, his soft and tender heart towards God, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David promising that he would always have a descendant on the throne. But David's screw-up is with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. This is when things start to spiral out of control for David. He commits adultery, then he tries to hide it and cover it up. When that doesn't work, he has his commander, his captain, in his army, sent out to the front line of the battlefields and put into a place where he will surely die. And so he commits murder, basically, through planning to make sure that he can try to cover it up. And then he marries Bathsheba to try to cover up the adultery. 
But that adultery led to King Solomon because he was Bathsheba's son. So David is the standard by which all kings are measured in Judah. He wasn't perfect. He made a lot of mistakes. He was a terrible husband. He was a terrible father. But he was a really good king. And he was very repentant every time someone confronted him of his sin. And he turned his heart back to God. And you can see that in all of the Psalms that he wrote. Now, if you look at our handout, I'm going to read this for those who are listening and don't see it. But a lot is written about David. David's life is covered from 1 Samuel 16 through 1 Kings chapter 2. It is also covered in 1 Chronicles 11 all the way through to the end of Chronicles in chapter 29. Psalms by David also include Psalms 3 through 9, 11 through 32, 34 through 41, 51 through 65, 68 through 70, 86, Psalm 101, Psalm 103, Psalm 108 through 110, Psalm 122, Psalm 124, Psalm 131, Psalm 133, and Psalms 138 through 145. Altogether, 75 psalms are attributed to David. There are more chapters attributed to David in the Bible than any person other than Jesus. That's how important a figure he is. But his son also has a lot attributed to him, King Solomon. He reigned from 970 to 931 BC, and he concludes and ends the United Kingdom of Israel. He's written about in 1 Kings 1 through 11 and 2 Chronicles 1 through 9. He also wrote the books of wisdom, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, and also two Psalms are attributed to Solomon, Psalm 27, or Psalm 72 and 127. There are important moments in Solomon's life, starting in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Solomon builds the temple that David yearned to. David spent the end of his life collecting money and materials to build a temple to God because he wanted to provide a permanent place of worship for the people and a house for God that was better than the palace because God was the one who truly deserved it. But God told David that he was not allowed to build the temple because how much blood was on his hands throughout his warrior lifestyle. So Solomon ends up getting that job and Solomon starts out building the temple beautifully and he makes it more beautiful than the palace that he builds for himself. Solomon's reign in the beginning starts out really well, but it takes a turn in 1 Kings 11, and you find out that he has 700 wives and 300 concubines, and he, gives his, he turns his heart from God and towards the foreign gods that his wives and concubines follow. And because of that, he ends up building shrines and temples and altars to pagan gods, and his life sort of takes a turn. Now, you do find out in Ecclesiastes, as he writes down all that he learned, that he didn't withhold any pleasure for himself, trying to figure out the meaning of life. And what he learned was, everything is meaningless in chasing after the wind. And the only thing you find pleasure in, really, and eternal pleasure, is serving God faithfully and following the law. But the end of his life, because so much of it was spent building altars and spending money on foreign pagan temples and gods and altars for his wives, he overtaxed the people and started to put a real burden on them towards the end of his life as he collected all of this gold. 
And his son, Jeroboam, who reigned, I'm sorry, his son, Rehoboam, who reigned from 931 to 915 BC, decided um, through some bad counsel that he was going to be even harder on the people of Israel. And that caused a split in the kingdom, and God allowed a new king to reign in the northern part of Israel. And the kingdom split into two, into north and south. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to deal with the northern kingdom of Israel first, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, so that we keep the lines separate and try to understand how this is categorized. So Jeroboam becomes the first king in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's promised by God that if he would just follow the law and do God's will, that he would be extremely blessed, but Jeroboam decides to go a different route. In fact, he even builds, just like Aaron did while they were wandering in the desert, golden calves and false gods for the people to worship, because Jeroboam's fear is that if the people head down to the southern kingdom of Judah to worship, that they would realign their allegiance with Rehoboam and he would lose his power. Now we actually see something in Chronicles that gives us an understanding of how things changed. So in 2 Chronicles 11, you have this, verses 13 through 17. It says, From all the territories, the priests and the Levites who were in Israel took their stand with him. For the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. Then he appointed himself priests for the high places for the demons and the calf idols which he had made. So Jeroboam has kicked out all of the Levites and the priests to God to prevent anyone from following the true God so that they would remain faithful to him. And he kicks them out and then he builds false gods, and appoints his own priests from outside of the Levitical line to run the religion in the north. So in verse 16, it says this, After the Levites left, those from all of the tribes of Israel, such as their heart to seek the Lord of God, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong for three years because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. So what does this tell us? What does all of that mean? Because of what Jeroboam had done, and he had taken away the ability to worship God, and they had take, he had also removed the connection to God by removing the Levites and kicking them out to the southern kingdom, that all those from the other tribes of Israel who remained faithful to God followed the Levites to the southern kingdom so that a remnant of all of the tribes of Israel existed in the south. So there are no lost tribes, and we have proof of it here in Second Chronicles. Now Jeroboam becomes, because of what he did, creating a false religion and appointing false priests and getting people to not worship God and kicking out any true worship out of the kingdom for the sake of his own power, he becomes the standard by which all are measured in the northern kingdom. And what you find out is everybody pretty much lives up to that standard. The entire northern kingdom had zero good kings. Everyone was evil. And a line that you see consistently put forth is just like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, as it describes each king, because they're all as evil as him. 
Now, what you find sometimes is there are some kings who did a little bit more, were a little bit more evil, like Ahab. And there were a few kings who, were, who had said they did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as Jeroboam, meaning they were evil, just not quite as bad as him. But everyone lived up to evil in the northern kingdom. And so what I've done here is I'm breaking it down by dynasty so that you can understand how it worked. In the southern kingdom, the messianic line held intact. It was still the lineage of David that reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah because that's where Jerusalem and the temple are. In the northern kingdom, a different, any member of any tribe could have been king because there was no royal bloodline to deal with. And so it just so happened that Jeroboam happened to have the right amount of influence and power that was given to him by God to become the king. And so he reigned from 931 to 910 BC, and his son reigned for a year after him. And that's the end of Jeroboam's dynasty. Just him and his son, and his son only reigns for a year. This is covered from 1 Kings 12 through 15 and 2 Chronicles 10. Now the next bloodline to arise is Baasha. And he takes over, and it's from a, he's from a different tribe. He's not from the same bloodline. So it's a brand new member of royalty, Baasha, takes over, and he usurps Nadab, the son of Jeroboam. And he reigns until 886 BC, and then his son reigns for one year. See, none of these people turned towards God, and they kept losing their kingdom right away, and they didn't have a sustained bloodline, including a captain in Elah's army who took over from Elah as a singular king. He had no bloodline following him, and he only reigned in 885 BC. He reigned for less than a year. And then a captain of his army turned against him. And this is what happens when anyone can take the throne, and it's not because of a royal bloodline. You have betrayal and usurping power and trying to draw influence and a contingency to gain power in the throne. And this time it was Omri. Now Omri is the first king with multiple descendants on the throne. He reigns from 885 to 874. He's still evil, but during his reign, Elijah comes up as the prophet. Um, and this might have something to do with his sustained reign because his line makes it through Elijah's life. Now, his son Ahab is the worst. He's the worst king in the northern kingdom of Israel. He marries a woman named Jezebel. They bring in all sorts of extra foreign worship besides what Jeroboam had already created in false worship. So now they have the golden calves that Jeroboam created. And they have Baal worship and Molech worship and all kinds of foreign pagan worship from Jezebel. And they create this long-lasting dynasty in the north where they have uh, several descendants take the throne, including Ahaziah and Joram. And they even have Ahab and Jezebel have some of their descendants marry into the southern kingdom's bloodline as well. So things get pretty bad with them, and they even start turning some of the southern kings bad. 
Now, Ahab, pretty well noted. Uh, Elijah, 1 Kings 17 through 19, are some pretty stellar moments. Elijah shows up on the scene. He gives a widow who has not enough flour or water to sustain life for her and her son, and yet it lasts for a long time. It's reminiscent of the miracle that Jesus did feeding 5,000 with bread and fish. He has a showdown with all of the pagan priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, and the 450 priests of Baal are cutting themselves and trying to get his attention to rain down fire on an altar, and nothing happens. And Elijah makes fun of the god Baal and of them worshiping him, and then prays to God, and fire rains down on his altar. And it's this just beautiful moment where God has victory, and some of the people start turning their heart back to God because of Elijah's ministry, even under the most evil king in the northern kingdom. And then he has his son Ahaziah and Joram, and their dynasty ends in 841. So from 885 to 841 BC is Amri's dynasty. After that, in the middle of Elisha's ministry, Elijah's protege, you have Jehu, who was a captain of Joram, Joram's army, and he takes over as king, and he has the longest-lasting dynasty with the most descendants on the throne. This dynasty goes from 841 BC to 752 BC. And the most important parts of this are really Elisha's ministry. Elisha does lots of miracles. He splits water, just like Elijah and Joshua and Moses. And you see a shift after Elisha dies. After Elisha dies, there's a couple of kings left in Jehu's bloodline, Jehoahaz and Jehoahash. Jeroboam II, and Zechariah. But that ends in 752 BC, and Shalem takes over as king. He doesn't even last for a year. Menahem takes over from 752 to 742 BC, and his dynasty lasts until 740 BC, where his son, Pekahiah, reigns for two years. Then a singular king, who was a captain of Pekahiah's army, Reigns from 752 to 722, or from 740 to 722, um, really without any rivals for the throne. And he's a singular king. He has no descendants. And then the last king in the northern kingdom of Israel is Hosea. And what you find out through all of this is the pagan worship increases, the amount of evil and the lack of following God increases in the northern kingdom. There's a lot of turnover at the end. Um, there's the last couple of kings have no, no descendants on the throne, and God sends in the Assyrian army to wipe them out and kick them out of the northern land of Israel. And in 722 BC, the northern kingdom no longer exists. So the split kingdom where there's a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah, goes from 931 to 722 B.C. And then from 722 to 586 B.C., only the southern kingdom of Judah exists because the Assyrians have wiped out the northern kingdom, and now Assyrians are on the border of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah, I'm just going to read through, read through the names. 
Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Uh, he reigns from 931 to 913 BC. Uh, for two years, his son Abijah reigns. Um, and then from 911 to 870 BC, his son Asa reigns. Then uh, Jehoshaphat reigns from 870 to 848 BC. Now, Jehoshaphat was a good king, but he's the one who made an alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was his son who married uh, Jezebel and Ahab's daughter. And you see that Jehoshaphat was a good king, but the influence of Ahab and Jezebel did not go well for Jehoram, his son, as he was an evil king the entire time. And he acted as Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And he's one of the few in the southern kingdom who is uh, described as a northern king because of how he acted. His son Ahaziah, also evil, reigned for less than a year. Um, his mother, Athaliah, takes his place, and she tries to wipe out the bloodline of David. But one, one boy was saved in David's bloodline, and when they found the right opportunity, they made him king. That was Joash, and he took over, and the bloodline of David remained because someone held him and kept him safe from Athaliah as she tried to destroy the Messianic line. Now his son Amaziah reigned. And both of these kings started out good, eventually ended poorly. His son Uzziah, or Azariah, reigned from 767 to 740 BC. His son Jotham reigned from 748 to 732. Ahaz reigned from 732 to 716. Hezekiah, reigned from 716 to 687 B.C. Now, Hezekiah is notable. Now, the last four kings were all during Isaiah, uh, or Isaiah and Micah's, uh, as prophets, but Hezekiah was a really good king. He's one of the bright spots in, in Judah's history. They had some, some evil kings. They had some kings who kind of started out well and ended poorly, or vice versa. But Hezekiah was pretty good all the way through. And his life even got extended because of how faithful he was to God and held off God's judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah. However, as good as Hezekiah was, his son Manasseh was the most evil king in Judah's history. And he added altars and pagan practices all throughout the southern kingdom of Judah and the temple, including prostitution in the temple in Jerusalem. And it was his actions that made God fed up with Judah, and he said he was going to bring judgment down on them. And at the end of Manasseh's life, he repented, and we find that out in Second Chronicles. But his repentance holds off God's judgment, but God still remembers how evil he was and is still going to judge Israel. Now, at the end of his life, he repented and he started to tear down altars and remove these practices from the kingdom of Judah, but not with enough time because his son Ammon, in the two years that he reigned, 
everything that Manasseh tore down, he put back up. And he was just as evil as his father. And ironically, the two most evil kings in, Israel, in Judah's history, his son Josiah was the best king in Judah's history. It's said about Josiah that there was no king like, like him before him or after who loved and served the Lord God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength like Josiah. And Josiah went on an absolute revolution and rampage. He tore down every idol. He tore down every altar. He cleaned out the temple. And he wiped everything out that was false worship. And what led to that moment was one of his servants in the temple found the books of the law that had been hidden. Of course they were hidden because none, the two kings before him didn't care at all about God. And they hid his word. But when the word was presented and the books of the law were read to Josiah, he weeped, tore his clothes, and went on an absolute rampage cleaning up Judah. And God said to Josiah that his judgment would not come as long as Josiah was alive. So Josiah's righteousness and conversion and what he did as a revolution to the people around him in the kingdom of Judah kept God's judgment from falling on them. And he was the best king in Judah's history. However, his son did not take after him, and he reigned for less than a year. And then Josiah's next son in line for the throne, Jehoiakim, is one of the worst kings in Judah's history. And he reigned from 608 to 597. And what you find out in Jeremiah chapter 36 is that his bloodline is cursed. And he is said by Jeremiah that he will not allow him to have an heir to the throne. So in 597 BC, when Jehoiakim dies, his son Jehoiachin takes over, but he doesn't last for even a year as he is killed when he's taken into captivity. And then Zedekiah, who is Jehoiakim's brother becomes king. And so Jehoiachin is still alive, and he's the legal heir to the throne. But Zedekiah becomes king, and he's the king that Jeremiah kept warning. If you would just, God is going to judge the southern kingdom of Judah. If you would just bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar when he comes through, it will be better for you. But he refuses to listen to Jeremiah, and they decide that they're going to fight against Babylon, and they lose pretty badly. And Nebuchadnezzar's cruelty is in full force against Zedekiah. He captures Zedekiah and Zedekiah's sons. And the last thing Zedekiah sees are his two sons being slaughtered right in front of his eyes, and then they gouge Zedekiah's eyes out to make sure that the last thing he sees and remembers are his sons dying. Now, eventually, Nebuchadnezzar dies, and his son, evil Merodach, becomes king of Babylon. And he releases Jehoiachin from prison. And so Jehoiachin is the last king of Judah left, and he's the legal heir to the throne, but his bloodline has been cursed. And so we end the books of Kings and Chronicles 
with the messianic bloodline being tainted and God not allowing their bloodline to sit on the throne. And all of this is extremely detailed and we can follow it, which is, this is why it's important because in the New Testament, you get two lineages of Jesus, one in Matthew and one in Luke. Now in Matthew, you get the bloodline of Joseph. And it turns out Joseph is a descendant of Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim, which means he's legally has the right to the throne. He's a legal heir to the throne, but that bloodline is cursed. God gets around this through the virgin birth of Mary, one that he had planned all the way back in Genesis 3 when God said that a seed from Eve would be the one to crush the head of the serpent. Adam was not involved in that process. Woman was, not man. And predicted even more in Isaiah when it says that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Now in Luke, you have the bloodline of Mary. And it turns out Mary is a descendant of David, but not through the line of Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. This means, as stated, the Messiah, Jesus, has David's blood running through his veins through Mary. He doesn't have the cursed blood of Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin running through his veins, but he still holds the legal right to the throne because of Joseph. And he is Joseph's adopted and oldest son. So Jesus holds the legal right to the throne and the blood of David without the curse line. And so God gets around this thing that happens at the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And God finds a way when Satan thinks he has won. And encapsulated all of that is what these books are about. It covers the bloodline of the Messiah and helps us perceive what goes on. Now, what you notice that are different about Kings and Chronicles, before we close up, is that Kings is from the point of view of the prophets. The prophets are the ones who wrote the books of Kings. And the prophets' job were often to correct the people and lead them back to God. So it seems pretty negative. A lot of what you see in there is correction and negativity. And while there's a few bright spots like Josiah or Hezekiah, there's a lot of stuff that you see that seems really negative from the point of view of the books of Kings because it's written from the prophets. And the prophets are there to correct the people and lead them back to God. That is the main job of a prophet. We think of a prophet as someone who tells the future. That's a small part of what they do. A prophet is really someone who rebukes and corrects and leads people back to moral good. And that was the job of the prophet, while they also did predict the future. That was another part of their job. But because of their job of correction, it feels kind of negative when you read through Kings. Now, Second Chronicles was, First and Second Chronicles was likely written by Ezra, which is the next book we will get into. So after the kingdom of Judah has been kicked out of Israel into Babylon, they're there for 70 years, and there's a new kingdom in town, Persia, and the Persians allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and start to rebuild. And the first thing they start to rebuild is the temple. And Ezra goes to help rebuild the, the temple with Zerubbabel, and Ezra 
as they're repopulating and reconstructing some of the worship elements in Jerusalem, is telling this story of Israel's kings because they're reestablishing their place in Jerusalem. And so this is a moment of positivity. This is a moment of reestablishing their place in Israel, in the promised land that was given to Abraham, in the covenant that was given to Abraham and David, that there would be someone on the throne. And so this is uplifting, and there's a lot of promise in this because they've reestablished themselves, and their hope is now fulfilled because they're no longer exiled. They're back in the land, now looking forward again. And so that's why you might see, while there's still a lot of negativity, because there's still a lot of evil that's done, you do get a little bit of extra notes in Chronicles that feel a little bit more positive. Like the books of Kings don't tell us that Manasseh repented and started to tear down. The most evil king in all of Judah's history repented, but that's not recorded in the books of Kings. But it is recorded in Chronicles. And it's not recorded in the books of the Kings that people from the northern kingdom who were faithful to God, left and moved to the southern kingdom to stay faithful to worship their God. And in doing so, they even gave Rehoboam, an evil king, three solid faithful years because of that revival that came from those who wanted to be faithful to God coming back to the southern kingdom. Those elements are in the books of Chronicles because it's written from a more positive point of view and from a priestly point of view, which is also why it's more detailed and less narrative because priests had to be incredibly detailed. So I hope that that clears up the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom and the major part of that history because as we move into the next parts of the Old Testament, we're going to be dealing with the post-exile when they're rebuilding Jerusalem, but they're still under the thumb of Persia. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for all of this. And I hope that it made sense, and I hope that this helps people who hear it uh, and those who are here. God, help us to keep all of this history straight because it's a straight line to Jesus. It is his lineage and history that helps us understand how he is the Messiah and how he's the only one who fits the description. So God, help us be aware and humbled by that fact. In Jesus' name, amen.